0: st petersburg first journey to western europe chapters thirteen and fourteen of memoirs of a revolutionist volume two by peter kropotkin this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by erlin i hastened of course to share with my friends my impressions of the international workingmen's association in my books at the university i had no friends properly speaking I was older than most of my companions, and among young people a difference of a few years is always an obstacle to complete comradeship. It must also be said that since the new rules of admission to the university had been introduced in 1861, the best of the young men, the most developed and the most independent in thought, were sifted out of the gymnasia, and did not gain admittance to the university. Consequently, the majority of my comrades were good boys, laborious, but taking no interest in anything besides the examinations. I was friendly with only one of them, let me call him Dmitri Kelnitz. He was born in South Russia, and although his name was German he hardly spoke German, and his face was South Russian rather than Teutonic. He was very intelligent, had read a good deal, and had seriously thought over what he had read. He loved science and deeply respected it, but, like many of us, He soon came to the conclusion that to follow the career of a scientific man meant to join the camp of the Philistines, and that there was plenty of other and more urgent work that he could do. He attended the university lectures for two years, and then abandoned them, giving himself entirely to social work. He lived, anyhow. I even doubt if he had a permanent lodging. Sometimes he would come to me and ask, Have you some paper? And, having taken a supply of it, He would sit at the corner of a table for an hour or two, diligently making a translation. The little that he earned in this way was more than sufficient to satisfy all his limited wants. Then he would hurry to a distant part of the town to see a comrade or help a needy friend, or he would cross St. Petersburg on foot to a remote suburb, in order to gain free admission to a college for some boy in whom the comrades were interested. He was undoubtedly a gifted man, in Western Europe a man far less gifted would have worked his way to a position of political or socialist leadership. No such thought ever entered the brain of Kelnitz To lead men was by no means his ambition, and there was no work too insignificant for him to do. This trait, however, was not distinctive of him alone. All those who had lived some years in the student circles of those times were possessed of it to a high degree. Soon after my return, Kelnitz invited me to join a circle which was known among the youth as the Circle of Tchaikovsky. Under this name it played an important part in the history of the social movement in Russia, and under this name it will go down to history. Its members, Kelnitz said to me, have hitherto been mostly constitutionalists, but they are excellent men, with minds open to any honest idea. They have plenty of friends all over Russia, and you will see later on what you can do. I already knew Tchaikovsky and a few other members of this circle. Tchaikovsky had won my heart at our first meeting, and our friendship has remained unshaken for twenty-seven years. The beginning of this circle was a very small group of young men and women, one of whom was Sofie Perovskaya, who had united for purposes of self-education and self-improvement. Tchaikovsky was of their number. In 1869 Nechayev had tried to start, amidst the youth imbued with the above-mentioned desire of working amongst the people, a secret revolutionary organization, and to secure this end he resorted to the ways of old conspirators, without recoiling even before deceit when he wanted to force his associates to follow his lead. Such methods could have no success in Russia, and very soon his society broke down. All the members were arrested, and some of the best and purest of the Russian youth went to Siberia before they had done anything. The circle of self-education of which I am speaking was constituted in opposition to the methods of Nitshaev. The first friends had judged, quite correctly, that a morally developed individuality must be the foundation of every organization, whatever political character it may take afterward, and whatever programme of action it may adopt in the course of future events. This was why the circle of Tchaikovsky, gradually widening its programme, spread so extensively in Russia, achieved such important results, and later on, when the ferocious prosecutions of the government created a revolutionary struggle, produced that remarkable set of men and women who fell in the terrible contest they waged against autocracy. At that time, however, that is, in 1872, the circle had nothing revolutionary in it. If it had remained a mere circle of self-improvement, it would soon have petrified, like a monastery. But the members found a suitable work. They began to spread good books. They bought the works of La Salle, Berry, on the condition of the laboring classes in Russia, Marx, Russian historical works, and so on, whole editions, and distributed them among students in the provinces. In a few years there was not a town of importance in thirty-eight provinces of the Russian Empire, to use official language, where this circle did not have a group of comrades engaged in the spreading of that sort of literature. Gradually, following the general drift of the times, and stimulated by the news which came from Western Europe about the rapid growth of the labor movement, THE CIRCLE BECAME MORE AND MORE A CENTER OF SOCIALISTIC PROPAGANDA AMONG THE EDUCATED YOUTH, AND A NATURAL INTERMEDIARY BETWEEN NUMBERS OF PROVINCIAL CIRCLES. AND THEN, ONE DAY, THE ICE BETWEEN STUDENTS AND WORKERS WAS BROKEN, AND DIRECT RELATIONS WERE ESTABLISHED WITH WORKING PEOPLE AT ST. PETERSBURG AND IN SOME OF THE PROVINCES. IT WAS AT THAT JUNCTURE THAT I JOINED THE CIRCLE, IN THE SPRING OF 1872. All secret societies are fiercely prosecuted in Russia, and the Western reader will perhaps expect from me a description of my initiation and of the oath of allegiance which I took. I must disappoint him, because there was nothing of the sort, and could not be. We should have been the first to laugh at such ceremonies, and Kelnitz would not have missed the opportunity of putting in one of his sarcastic remarks, which would have killed any ritual. There was not even a statute. The circle accepted as members only persons who were well known and had been tested in various circumstances, and of whom it was felt that they could be trusted absolutely. Before a new member was received, his character was discussed with the frankness and seriousness which were characteristic of the nihilist. The slightest token of insincerity or conceit would have barred the way to admission. The circle did not care either to make a show of numbers, And had no tendency to concentrate in its hands all the activity that was going on among the youth, or to include in one organization the scores of different circles which existed in the capitals and the provinces. With most of them friendly relations were maintained. They were helped, and they helped us, when necessity arose, but no assault was made on their autonomy. The circle preferred to remain a closely united group of friends, and never did I meet elsewhere such a collection of morally superior men and women as the score of persons whose acquaintance I made at the first meeting of the Circle of Tchaikovsky. I still feel proud of having been received into that family. End of chapter 13 St. Petersburg, First Journey to Western Europe, Chapter 14 When I joined the circle of Tchaikovsky, I found its members hotly discussing the direction to be given to their activity. Some were in favor of continuing to carry on radical and socialistic propaganda among the educated youth, but others thought that the sole aim of this work should be to prepare men who would be capable of arousing the great inert laboring masses, and that their chief activity ought to be among the peasants and workmen in the towns. In all the circles and groups which were formed at that time by the hundred at St. Petersburg and in the provinces, the same discussions went on, and everywhere the second programme prevailed over the first. If our youth had merely taken to socialism in the abstract, it might have felt satisfied with a mere declaration of socialist principles, including as a distant aim, the communistic possession of the instruments of production and in the meantime it might have carried on some sort of political agitation. Many middle-class socialist politicians in Western Europe and America really take this course. But our youth had been drawn to socialism in quite another way. They were not theorizers about socialism, but had become socialists by living no richer than the workers live, by making no distinction between mine and thine in their circles and by refusing to enjoy for their own satisfaction the riches they had inherited from their fathers. They had done with regard to capitalism what Tolstoy advises should now be done with regard to war. That is, people, instead of criticizing war and continuing to wear the military uniform, should refuse, each one for himself, to be a soldier and to use arms. In the same way, our Russian youth, each one for himself or herself, refused to take personal advantage of the revenues of their fathers. Such a youth had to go to the people, and they went. Thousands and thousands of young men and women had already left their homes, and tried now to live in the villages and the industrial towns in all possible capacities. This was not an organized movement. It was one of those mass movements which occur at certain periods of sudden awakening of human conscience. Now that small organized groups were formed— ready to try a systematic effort for spreading ideas of freedom and revolt in Russia. They were forcibly brought to carry on that propaganda amidst the dark masses of peasants and workers in the towns. Various writers have tried to explain this movement to the people, by influences from abroad. Foreign agitators are everywhere a favorite explanation. It is certainly true that our youth listened to the mighty voice of Bakunin, and that the agitation of the International Workingmen's Association had a fascinating effect upon us. But the movement Venarod, to the people, had a far deeper origin. It began before foreign agitators had spoken to the Russian youth, and even before the International Association had been founded. It began already in the groups of Karakosov in 1866, Turgenev saw it coming, and already in 1859 faintly indicated it. I did my best to promote that movement in the circle of Tchaikovsky, but I was only working with the tide, which was infinitely more powerful than any individual efforts. We often spoke, of course, of the necessity of a political agitation against our absolute government. We saw already that the mass of the peasants were being driven to unavoidable and irremediable ruin by foolish taxation and by the still more foolish selling off of their cattle to cover the arrears of taxes. We, visionaries, saw coming that complete ruin of a whole population which by this time, alas, has been accomplished to an appalling extent in central Russia, and is confessed by the government itself. We knew how, in every direction, Russia was being plundered in a most scandalous manner. We knew, and we learned more every day, of the lawlessness of the functionaries, and the almost incredible bestiality of many among them. We heard continually of friends whose houses were raided at night by the police, who disappeared in prisons, and who, we ascertained later on, had been transported without judgment to hamlets in some remote province of Russia. We felt, therefore, the necessity of a political struggle against this terrible power, Which was crushing the best intellectual forces of the nation. But we saw no possible ground, legal or semi-legal, for such a struggle. Our elder brothers did not want our socialistic aspirations, and we could not part with them. Nay, even if some of us had done so, it would have been of no avail. The young generation as a whole were treated as suspects, and the elder generation feared to have anything to do with them. Every young man of democratic tastes, every young woman following a course of higher education, was a suspect in the eyes of the state police, and was denounced by Katkov as an enemy of the state. Cropped hair and blue spectacles worn by a girl, a Scotch plaid worn in winter by a student instead of an overcoat, which were evidences of nihilist simplicity and democracy, were denounced as tokens of political unreliability. If any student's lodging came to be frequently visited by other students, it was periodically invaded by the state police and searched. So common were the night raids in certain students' lodgings that Kellnitz once said, in his mildly humorous way, to the police officer who was searching the rooms, Why should you go through all our books each time you come to make a search? You might as well have a list of them, and then come once a month to see if they are all on the shelves, And you might, from time to time, add the titles of the new ones. The slightest suspicion of political unreliability was sufficient ground upon which to take a young man from a high school, to imprison him for several months, and finally to send him to some remote province of the Urals, for an undetermined term, as they used to say in their bureaucratic slang. Even at the time when the circle of Tchaikovsky did nothing but distribute books, all of which had been printed with the censor's approval. Tchaikovsky was twice arrested and kept some four or six months in prison, on the second occasion at a critical time of his career as a chemist. His researches had recently been published in the Bulletin of the Academy of Sciences, and he had come up for his final university examinations. He was released at last, because the police could not discover sufficient evidence against him to warrant his transportation to the Urals. "'But if we arrest you once more,' he was told, "'we shall send you to Siberia.' In fact, it was a favourite dream of Alexander II to have, somewhere in the steppes, a special town, guarded night and day by patrols of Cossacks, where all suspected young people could be sent." so as to make of them a city of ten or twenty thousand inhabitants. Only the menace which such a city might one day offer prevented him from carrying out this truly Asiatic scheme. One of our members, an officer, had belonged to a group of young men whose ambition was to serve in the provincial Zemstvos district and county councils. They regarded work in this direction as a high mission, and prepared themselves for it by serious studies of the economical conditions of central Russia. Many young people cherished for a time the same hopes, but all these hopes vanished at the first contact with the actual government machinery. Having granted institutions of a very limited form of self-government to certain provinces of Russia, the government, immediately after having passed that law, directed all its effort to reduce that reform to nothing and to deprive it of all its meaning and vitality. The provincial self-government had to content itself with the mere function of state officials who would collect additional local taxes and spend them for the local needs of the state. Every attempt of the county councils to take the initiative in any improvement schools, teachers' colleges, sanitary measures, agricultural improvements, and the like, was met by the central government with suspicion, nay, with hatred, and denounced by the Moscow Gazette as separatism, as the creation of a state within the state, as rebellion against autocracy. If anyone were to tell the true history, for example, of the Teachers' College of Tver, or of any similar undertaking of a Zemstvo in those years, with all the petty persecutions, the prohibitions, the suspensions, and what not, with which the institution was harassed, no West European, and especially no American reader, would believe it. He would throw the book aside, saying, it cannot be true, it is too stupid to be true. And yet it was so. Whole groups of the elected representatives of several Zemstvos were deprived of their functions, ordered to leave their province and their estates, or were simply exiled, for having dared to petition the Emperor in the most loyal manner concerning such rights as belonged to the Zemstvos by law. The elected members of the provincial councils must be simple ministerial functionaries and obey the Minister of the Interior. Such was the theory of the St. Petersburg government. As to the less prominent people, doctors, teachers, and the like, in the service of the local councils, they were removed and exiled by the State Police in twenty-four hours, "'without further ceremony than an order of the omnipotent third section of the Imperial Chancellery. "'No longer ago than last year, a lady whose husband is a rich landowner, "'and occupies a prominent position in one of the zemstvos, "'and who is herself interested in education, "'invited eight schoolmasters to her birthday party. "'Poor man,' she said to herself, "'they never have the opportunity of seeing anyone but the peasants.' The day after the party, the village policeman called at the mansion, and insisted upon having the names of the eight teachers, in order to report them to the police authorities. The lady refused to give the names. "'Very well,' he replied. "'I will find them out, nevertheless, and make my report. Teachers must not come together, and I am bound to report if they do.' The high position of the lady sheltered the teachers in this case, But if they had met in the lodgings of one of their own number, they would have received a visit from the State Police, and half of them would have been dismissed by the Ministry of Education. And if, moreover, an angry word had escaped from one of them during the police raid, he or she would have been sent to some province of the Urals. This is what happens today, thirty-three years after the opening of the county and district councils. But it was far worse in the seventies. What sort of basis for a political struggle could such institutions offer? When I inherited from my father his Tambov estate, I thought very seriously for a time of settling on that estate, and devoting my energy to work in the local Zemstvo. Some peasants and the poorer priests of the neighbourhood asked me to do so. As for myself, I should have been content with anything I could do, no matter how small it might be, if only it would help to raise the intellectual level and the well-being of the peasants. But one day, when several of my advisers were together, I asked them, supposing I were to try to start a school, an experimental farm, a cooperative enterprise, and at the same time also took upon myself the defence of that peasant from our village who has lately been wronged, would the authorities let me do it? Never, was the unanimous reply. An old grey-haired priest, a man who was held in great esteem in our neighbourhood, came to me a few days later, with two influential dissenting leaders, and said, Talk with these two men. If you can manage it, go with them and, Bible in hand, preach to the peasants. Well, you know what to preach. No police in the world will find you if they conceal you. There's nothing to be done besides. That's what I, an old man, advise you. I told them frankly why I could not assume the part of Ryclyffe. But the old man was right. A movement similar to that of the Lollards is rapidly growing now amongst the Russian peasants. Such tortures as have been inflicted upon the peace-loving Dukobos, and such raids upon the peasant dissenters in South Russia as were made in 1897, when children were kidnapped so that they might be educated in orthodox monasteries will only give to that movement a force that it could not have attained five-and-twenty years ago. As to the question of agitation for a constitution was continually being raised in our discussions, I once proposed to our circle to take it up seriously and to choose an appropriate plan of action. I was always of the opinion that when the circle decided anything unanimously, each member ought to put aside his personal feeling and give all his strength to the task. If you decide to agitate for a constitution, I said, this is my plan. I will separate myself from you, for appearance's sake, and maintain relations with only one member of the circle, for instance Tchaikovsky, through whom I shall be kept informed how you succeed in your work, and can communicate to you in a general way what I am doing. My work will be among the courtiers and the higher functionaries. I have among them many acquaintances and know a number of persons who are disgusted with the present conditions. I will bring them together and unite them, if possible, into a sort of organization, and then, some day, there is sure to be an opportunity to direct all these forces toward compelling Alexander II to give Russia a constitution. There will certainly come a time when all these people, feeling that they are compromised, will in their own interest take a decisive step, if it is necessary, Some of us, who have been officers, might be very helpful in extending the propaganda amongst the officers in the army, but this action must be quite separate from yours, though parallel with it. I have seriously thought of it. I know what connections I have and who can be trusted, and I believe some of the discontented already look upon me as a possible centre for some action of this sort. This course is not the one I should take of my own choice, but if you think that it is best, I will give myself to it, with might and main." The Circle did not accept that proposal. Knowing one another as well as they did, my comrades probably thought that if I went in this direction I should cease to be true to myself. For my own personal happiness, for my own personal life, I cannot feel too grateful now that my proposal was not accepted. I should have gone in a direction which was not the one dictated by my own nature and I should not have found in it the personal happiness which I have found in other paths. But when, six or seven years later, the terrorists were engaged in their terrible struggle against Alexander II, I regretted that there had not been somebody else to do that sort of work I had proposed to do in the higher circles at St. Petersburg. With some understanding there beforehand, and with the ramifications which such an understanding probably would have taken all over the Empire, the holocaust of victims would not have been made in vain. At any rate, the underground work of the Executive Committee ought by all means to have been supported by a parallel agitation at the Winter Palace. Over and over again the necessity of a political effort thus came under discussion in our little group, with no result. The apathy and the indifference of the wealthier classes were hopeless and the irritation among the persecuted youth had not yet been brought to that high pitch which ended, six years later, in the struggle of the terrorists under the executive committee. Nay, and this is one of the most tragical ironies of history. It was the same youth whom Alexander II, in his blind fear and fury, ordered to be sent by the hundred to hard labour and condemned to slow death and exile. It was the very same youth who protected him in 1871-78. to 78. The very teachings of the socialist circles were such as to prevent the repetition of a Karakosov attempt on the Tsar's life. Prepare in Russia a great socialist mass movement amongst the workers and the peasants, was the watchword in those times. Don't trouble about the Tsar and his councillors. If such a movement begins, if the peasants join in the mass movement to claim the land, and to abolish the serfdom redemption taxes, the imperial power will be the first to seek support in the moneyed classes and the landlords, and to convoke a parliament, just as the peasant insurrection in France in 1789 compelled the royal power to convoke the National Assembly. So it will be in Russia. But there was more than that. Separate men and groups Seeing that the reign of Alexander II was hopelessly doomed to sink deeper and deeper in reaction, and entertaining at the same time vague hopes as to the supposed liberalism of the heir apparent, all young heirs to thrones are supposed to be liberal, persistently reverted to the idea that the example of Karakosov ought to be followed. The organized circles, however, strenuously opposed such an idea, and urged their comrades not to resort to that course of action. I may now divulge the following fact, which has hitherto remained unknown. When a young man came to St. Petersburg from one of the southern provinces with a firm intention of killing Alexander II, and some members of the Tchaikovsky circle learned of his plan, they not only applied all the weight of their arguments to dissuade the young man, but, when he would not be dissuaded, they informed him that they would keep a watch over him and prevent him by force from making any such attempt. Knowing well how loosely guarded the Winter Palace was at that time, I can positively say that they saved the life of Alexander II. So firmly were the youth opposed at that time to the war in which later, when the cup of their sufferings was filled to overflowing, they took part. End of St. Petersburg, First Journey to Western Europe, Chapter 14